Well, as we continue to worship, go ahead and stand uh, now as um, I read God's word for us. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. So hear God's word this morning. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, and uh, let me say again, welcome to Christ Community. My name is is Tim, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here. And felt like it's been a while since we've been here. Of of course, last week uh, I was on vacation and and, uh, in Chicago going to a Cubs game and uh, just praying for uh, the the winning to continue. And then uh, two weeks ago, of course, the air conditioning was broken, so we we weren't here. And uh, so it's been a few weeks since we've been together, and it's good. Um, good to be with you, although I really wish the air conditioning would have broken on the divorce and remarriage Sunday. Um, I had a really good Sunday, or sermon ready that Sunday, and well, that's how God works. So, uh, but we do want to take this, we want to take the Bible seriously. We're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, which is why we've landed on what is a difficult, a difficult topic. And so I want to pause, ask for God's help, and, uh, and pray, and then jump into what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Let's pray. God, your word says that Your word is a light into our feet and a lamp into our paths. And so, God, would you light the way for us this morning? As we think about marriage, what it is, what it means to be married, God, why this thing exists, would you open our eyes to see your word, what Jesus said so many years ago? God, we pray and ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? For any reason? That's the question the Pharisees put to Jesus here. And the, the, the reason is they want to trap him or embarrass him. And I've always wondered how this question is a trap or an embarrassment to, to Jesus. How exactly this, this question would narrow him in and, and put him in a difficult place. And, and yet, having spent this past week trying to write a sermon on marriage, I understand the moment you speak about marriage... Whether it's Jesus here, whether it's you, whether it's me preaching a sermon on it, you're trapped. That that marriage, because it's one of our our highest ideals and institution, it also means that's where most of us experience our greatest pain and disappointment and hurt. And my guess is this morning, if I ask those of us in, in this room to raise their hands, either who've been touched by divorce or are considering it or want to be divorced, my guess is almost every hand would be raised. I think of one of our closest family friends growing up, Debbie, whose, whose husband divorced her, and, and our church really shamed her for it. But I think of our, our neighbors from Indiana, Chrissy, whose husband in the last few months left, uh, left her for another woman. 
Now, I know the moment to start thinking about marriage, these are the stories, these are the people that I have in mind, which is why when Jesus is asked this question, he's really trapped. The moment you start speaking about marriage, someone's going to get hurt. And yet, uh, this morning, I want to answer the question the way Jesus answers the question. But what's interesting is, is Jesus doesn't talk about divorce. He talks about marriage. What it is, what's gone wrong, and how we can renew our, our hope. But Jesus begins by giving really an unapologetic view of what marriage really is. And, and that's where I want to start. The first two points of the sermon are, this is what marriage is. We're, we're not going to shy away from that or back away from that. And it's going to be painful for every person in this room, at least it should be. Because marriage is, is this institution of, of, of a high ideal, it means all of us have failed at it in some way, shape, or form. And, and so we should feel a little bit of that in points one and two. And then point three, we'll get... Well, hopefully, we'll just fill this room so much full of hope that we leave with a sense of optimism of what marriage is and why it's, it's among us. And so let's jump in. Let's let Jesus show us, one, what marriage is, two, why marriage has been ruptured, and three, how we can renew our hope. So first, what, what is marriage? And if you've been listening with us as we've been going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, one thing you, you hopefully have noticed by now is that just about any time Jesus is asked a question, he answers the question by not answering the question. And so here he's asked, is, is it lawful to divorce anyone, anyone's wife for any reason? And the reason that's the question is because divorce in that day, it was, it was incredibly common that there were some men in that day who thought that you could divorce your wife if she didn't cook your meal properly. But even men who had more restrictive views of divorce still held all the power because only men could divorce women, not the other way around. And so this was just one more example of how women were oppressed in this day. And so instead of Jesus answering their question, saying, okay, here are all the reasons you can, you can divorce your wife, he instead goes back to Genesis 1. Even, actually, even before marriage, he goes to Genesis 1, and then he goes to Genesis 2 to define what marriage is for them. And so... Because these words are so important, let's listen to them again. Verses 4 through 6 in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so what is, what is Jesus saying marriage is here? Well, I want to unpack all that he's saying here. And we could, we could spend so much time here, but just three things quickly of what Jesus is saying marriage is in this passage. The first, what he's saying is, is marriage, it connects two different genders into, into one new reality. That Jesus, he starts his answer by going back all the way to Genesis 1, where if, if you go back to Genesis 1, what you find is, is when God made humanity, he started by only having male uh, humans. There was just male. And so God had a two-word response when he looked at a humanity where, that only included males, a, an earth that would have been full of males and no females. God had a two-word response to that. Not good. <laughs> right? And, and yesterday, Missy had uh, spent the day away from us. So I, we have three sons. So yesterday, our house was four males. Um, and if you had spent the day uh, with us four males, you would have had a two-word response to that day. <laughs> Not good. Right, and so God's response to Adam's aloneness, the fact that there's only males, is not to create another male, but to create a female. 
someone specifically designed that's different than the male and yet a, a perfect complement to the male, which means, to, for starters, difference is inherent to what marriage is. Right? God doesn't create two of the same. He builds difference into what, to what marriage is. Which, quick application for those of you who are married. The next time you're really frustrated because you don't understand your spouse, right? they're really difficult to understand because they're so different from you, just pause. That was God's idea. God did not want two of you in a marriage. He wanted someone different, a different type of human being to be partnered with. And so that, that's God's design for marriage. Difference is within the design of marriage. And so God makes, this, makes the woman to pair with the male and then officiates the first wedding over them in Genesis 2, which is the next words Jesus quotes over them, that a man shall leave his wife or leave his family. He should not leave his wife. That's, we'll, get, we'll get there. Um, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. These two different human beings, these two different genders, they come together and make one new flesh, one new reality. And this one flesh reality, it's true relationally, right? You're, you're to leave your old family, your old past behind. You're in, to enter into this new thing, which means all of your future, all of your decisions, all of your finances, everything that you do moving forward is done together with that person in, in relationship, not by yourself, it's true emotionally, or it's supposed to be, that there is to be a complete dependence and vulnerability in that space of marriage. Because you're one, you're not two, you're not separate. You're, there's, there's a space to be who you really are in love and to be received. This is true physically in, in the act of sex, that the act of, of sex between male and female is a physical symbolism of the one flesh that Jesus talks about, that physically our bodies were designed to be in relationship with another gender. And of course, the, one of the biggest implications of, of this one flesh reality is that when you come together, there, there's literally one fleshes that can come from that relationship, children. Right? That our three sons, Isaiah, Micah, and Abel, they are one fleshes of Misty and, and I. And so these two different genders, two different types of human being, God says in marriage, they become one together. And maybe for many of us, this is where our skepticism sets in where we start to say, okay, but my marriage doesn't feel like a one flesh reality. With complete safety, with vulnerability, with complete trust and dependence on one another, that, that's not my, my marriage. And that leads us into the second thing of what Jesus is saying marriage is here in, in Genesis 1 and 2, which is that marriage is, is not a consumer relationship, it's a covenant relationship. Now, one of the most posted articles on Facebook over the last few months have been, was a New York Times article entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And in it, the author points out that, that we tend to make our feelings and personal happiness the greatest good in marriage. Right? And then we also then make our, our feelings and personal happiness the basis of a permanent marriage. And here's what he, he writes, the author. We marry to make a nice feeling permanent. We imagine that marriage will help us bottle the joy we felt when the thought of propose, proposing first came to us. We married to make such sensations permanent, but failed to see that there was no solid connection between these feelings and the institution of marriage. If you see marriage primarily through what it can do for you, 
that it can give you certain feelings, it can make you feel a certain way, that it can give certain things to you. That is, that is viewing marriage as a consumer, not as a covenant. It's, it's, what, it's what I can get from it, which is a consumer relationship. It's completely different than two different realities merging together to become one flesh. You can't do that in a consumer relationship. It has to be a covenant. For the few years leading up to, to when I was married, I watched my, my grandfather, who uh, my kids call Papa Joe, um, care for my grandmother as Parkinson's slowly took over her body. And I watched him as it first meant that he would, he would feed her when her, her hand was too shaky to feed herself. Then I watched him in his 80-plus-year-old body lift her wheelchair out of his car and put it back, insisting that he was the one to do that. And I watched him demand that she spend her last days not in a hospital, but in, in their home together. That even when the, the days of sharing his bed with his wife were long past, he still shared his home with her. And that, that's covenant love. Right? And before my grandfather had to love my grandmother through Parkinson's, he had to love her through a short temper, through doing things he probably didn't want her to do, through saying things to him that he didn't want her to say he had to be willing to commit to her in a covenant, not as a consumer. That a marriage, a covenant relationship, it's rooted in promise. Whereas a consumer relationship, it's, it's contingent upon personal happiness. That a covenant relationship, it's inherently others-centered. It looks out, away from yourself. Whereas a consumer relationship looks inward. What, what are you doing for me? That in a covenant relationship, the focus is on your spouse. In a consumer relationship, it's on yourself. A covenant relationship is lasting and cannot be broken. Or as a consumer relationship, it's subject to constant review. Are you living up? Are you doing enough? Did you fail me this week? And so that, that's the first two realities of what Jesus is saying marriage is. It's this one flesh of two human beings. And the only way it works is if it's a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. And the third thing that I, I want to say is that, that marriage, it's, it's a gift from God. It's not something we human beings made up ourselves. Which means God has designed this institution, this place, as a place for human beings to be completely vulnerable with one another. To have a kind of community that is unique and available to no one else. If you're married, you have a kind of community with your spouse you will never have with anyone else. As the place where children could be raised in complete safety and vulnerability. Where two different genders are speaking into their life and their reality every day of their existence. And this beauty of what marriage is, this institution, is why Jesus in verse 6 warns the Pharisees. It's the strongest thing he says in this passage where he looks at them. They've asked, how, when can we get divorced? And Jesus' basic response to that question is, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's a warning, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, God made marriage. It's not yours. It's his. It's on loan to you. And you have no right to take it and make it what you would want from it. Right, that Jesus has just explained what marriage is. It's this two flushing of two different, or one flushing of two different human beings. You can't just pull those apart. And this was incredibly good news for women in this day who were being abused by men who were abusing the gift that God had given them in marriage. Men were just divorcing women for all kinds of reasons, not unlike today in some ways. And so Jesus, he's looking at these Pharisees, these men, these would have been men asking this question and saying to them, marriage is a covenant relationship, which is until your death, and you don't get to get out of it because you're, you're unhappy or because it's not fulfilling you personally. It was for your spouse's good that you entered into that marriage, not your good. And yet you come to me with the question, can I divorce my wife for any reason? 
It's not hard to imagine the tension. It's the tension I'm feeling here in, in this moment. And the reality is they had come to trap Jesus, and Jesus has now trapped them. But they, as the Pharisees often are, are completely oblivious to this tension and the way Jesus has just rebuked them. And so he, they push on for a second question. And the second question they ask gets at why marriage has been ruptured. And the second question they go into is that Moses, in Deuteronomy, this, this book in the Bible, um, had said, if, if you divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce. And so the, the Pharisees then ask, okay, well, if, if divorce is so bad, Jesus, then why would Moses command men to give their wives a, a certificate of divorce? Almost as if they're reading Moses as commanding divorce as a good thing. But the reason behind that command to, that Moses gave was because divorce to a woman made her completely vulnerable. And so a certificate of divorce, it allowed her to remarry. It allowed her to show that she, she didn't walk away from her husband. And so the certificate of divorce was a form of protection for the woman. It wasn't a, a good thing. And so Jesus is hinting at that in his answer, but he goes a step further as to why Moses had to carve out this exception for divorce in Deuteronomy. And so here's what Jesus says to this question in verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, hardness of heart sounds like kind of a religious, religious-y phrase. It doesn't sound like a sharp rebuke. But this is, as far as like biblical put-downs get, like this is high, this is high up there, like be on par with your mama, something like, something like that. Like this is... Jesus is really laying into them here. This phrase, hardness of heart, it's, it's, it's one of the strongest words God uses when he's rebuking his people. That a word picture of this in, in Exodus 33 is when God is describing to people the land that they're about to move into, a land that's going to be great to farm, full of milk and honey. They're going to be prosperous in that place. And the people, as God, are, as God is making those promises to them, they're hard-hearted. And the image you get is, is that their ears are covered and they're not listening. That God is, is making outlandish, gracious, incredible promises to them, and they have their ears covered, which is, is what we, we've done with marriage. God has made this institution for us, gifted it to us, and we have our ears covered saying, no, God, we'll, we'll, we'll do with marriage what we want. And, and so I want to be very clear, though, that this, this phrase, hardness of heart, it is, Jesus is not using this only of people who have been through a divorce. Jesus is not drawing a line between divorced people are hard-hearted and those who are not divorced are not. No, everyone is hard-hearted. Jesus uses this word in Mark 16 to refer to his own disciples. Every human being is hard-hearted, which means every human being has within us the seeds for divorce, which means those of us in this room who have not been divorced have no right to look on, down on those who have been divorced with pride or with arrogance as if we're better, we're not. Because maybe the only reason you're not divorced is because your spouse and so what, is, what does it mean to have hard, a hardness of heart? What does it mean that that's the seed of, of divorce? Well, let me lay out three, three implications from this verse for us. That, that first, it means I enter my marriage as a threat to my marriage. That Jesus says divorce exists because I have a hard heart. Because I'm stubborn. Because I want my way. And yes, your spouse has a hard heart as well. God wants to deal with that. But if, if your spouse's heart is softened in the end and yours is not, your marriage might be saved, but you will not be. 
that we all have this hard heart and marriage is a place where it comes out more than any other. And maybe you hear that and think, Tim, I agree with that. I, I have a soft heart. I'm trying to soften my heart. It's my spouse that has a really hard heart. That's why our marriage is falling apart. What now? And we'll get there. But we have to pause on this, this point because as Martin Luther said several hundred years ago, all of the Christian life is, is of repentance. It's why every Sunday, um, we have yet to do it this morning, but we will. We confess our sins before God. Right? As, as Christians, that is foundational to who we are. We know we are hard-hearted. We know we have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's where we start as we enter into marriage. I enter marriage as a threat to my marriage. So that's one implication. The second implication is, is that if, if you're in Christ, you, you never consider divorce as a good option. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean divorce is never an option. Jesus here says there's a, a ground for legit, legitimate divorce. The Bible and other places give other grounds for legitimate divorce. And, and the reason we're not really going to spend any time on that this morning, because Jesus doesn't really spend any time on that this morning, like, really, it's just one word. And even the one word he uses, people have been debating for centuries what this word sexual immorality actually means. The, the point, I, th I think, is just that, yes, there are grounds for divorce, but don't focus there. Because even, even if you go to divorce and it's the, it's the best option, it's still not a good option. It's, it may be the best of the worst options, but it's never a good thing. And so what I want to do this morning is drive us back to the goodness of marriage because you cannot tear apart two the one flesh God makes without significant damage. And so as a pastor, I've counseled people towards divorce. I, I don't think divorce is the unforgivable sin. I don't think it's always the thing that should not happen. And yet, as a pastor, if I'm committed to anything, it is to, to seeing healthy, thriving, flourishing marriages. Whether it's your first marriage, whether it's your second marriage, whatever, wherever marriage you're at today, we want to see that flourish and to God be at work in that space. Because the reality is divorce, it's, it's tearing two flesh, or one flesh apart into two. And the costs are evident, right? I mean, those of you who've been through divorces, those of you who have seen friends go through divorces, right? They're the long, drawn-out legal battles. It's financially costly and devastating to families that 80% of women and children live in poverty immediately for the first 18 months after divorce. That over the last 50 years, as divorce has increased in frequency, um, it's been pointed out that that's one of the major factors to our slowing of economic growth that the Marriage and Religion Research Center um, said this in one of their studies. It said, besides for population effects originating in the 1960s and 70s, there are no other consequences of policy change that have had a greater effect in slowing economic growth than the divorce revolution. But the, the more significant reason um, is... It was a book called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. It's not written by a Christian. As far as I know, she's not a committed Christian. But her name's Judith Wallerstein. And what she concluded was that while adults will emotionally heal from their, their divorce in three to five years, the effects of divorce on children will last into the child's adulthood. The Wallerstein concludes that children from divorced homes will have a harder time trusting. But she writes, children draw the conclusion, sadly, that adult relationships are fragile and that they can come apart suddenly without warning. The children from divorced homes are more likely to commit crimes, become sexually active at a younger age, and are less likely to enter marriage themselves in adulthood. And one of the conclusions she makes from that book is it's better to stay married and be miserable than to get a divorce and be happy because it's better for the kids. 
And so that, I don't, I don't say any of that because that is brutally hard truth for those of you who have, have gone through divorce. I don't say any of that to guilt and shame those of you who've been through a, a divorce. That, that's past, right? As, as a church, we, we pastor in the present, right? We don't linger on the past. God forgives sin. We believe that. But for those of you, and I know there are many of you in here whose marriages are struggling, it is, a, it is a, I hope, in some way an encouragement to say, don't give up yet. Your kids need you to stay together. So those are, those are two implications of, of how marriage has been ruptured, what it means for us. One, I enter my threat as a marriage. Right? I, I, I have a hard heart that could lead to divorce in the end. And then second, we, listen, if we're Christians, we don't consider divorce a good option. It's, it is an option, but we always want to try to work to save marriage. And thirdly, we, we receive marriage as a gift from God. And I'm repeating this point from point one because I just think this is the thing we've missed as, as a culture and especially as a church, that marriage is not something we human beings made up. It's a gift given to us. And to get marriage right, you have to know what marriage is. And that's why Jesus responds to this question not by giving a theology of divorce, but by giving a theology of marriage, by going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus goes right to the fact that it, it, it's given to us by God. And, and, and yet, in our culture, we don't approach marriage like that. We approach it as, as if it, it's our good, as if it's our thing, which has given us great freedom to redefine how we view the marriage relationship. And, and it's, we've done that in two ways that I want to I push into for a minute. Two ways our culture has really redefined the way we view marriage. That first, our, our culture has rejected defining marriage around the importance of gender difference. That one thing I often hear is that Jesus never spoke to, to same-sex marriage, which in some ways is true. Um, but in, in many ways, it's unfair because Jesus, I think, would have given the same answer to that question that he gives to divorce here in Matthew 19. Not by saying, well, here are the things you can do and not do, but by going back to the definition of what marriage is in the first place. And when Jesus goes back to marriage, he doesn't, go, he doesn't say it's the, it's the greatest form of love between two human beings or it's the highest ideal of romantic achievement or it's the greatest community between adults, consenting adults that can be no, what he does is he goes back and he says, in the beginning there were only men and it was terrible. So God made a woman and from that relationship can come children and can come a one fleshing of two different people. God, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, tied into gender difference, which is one reason why we Christians humbly, and sadly we rarely do this humbly or with no pride or sense of arrogance. When we look at marriage, we see it as two different genders. Because this thing isn't ours. Marriage is not ours. We didn't invent this. God has entrusted, us, entrusted it to us. That's one way we've gotten it wrong, but there's a way we've gotten it wrong that's been way worse, and that is that our culture and, and those of us in the church have turned marriage into a consumer relationship, not a covenant one. Now, when I was, I was a kid growing up, I had a covenant relationship or a, a consumer relationship with uh, swimming pools. Or that you do the thing where you dip your toe in, and it's really cold, and you dip it back out, and you free, and then you put your foot in, right? And then you, you up to your knee, and it takes like an hour to get into the pool. I was one of those annoying kids that the adults were like, I'm gonna throw that kid in the pool any second. Right? That, I had a consumer relationship, which is, can I trust you, right? Can I go in? Whereas a covenant relationship is the way that you're supposed to enter the pool, which is you just jump in, right? And like 10 minutes later, you're fine. It's, you get used to the cold, you're okay, right? That's covenant relationship. It's just you jump in, and yet, we have redefined what marriage is into more of a consumer relationship. You dip the toe in. But it's not how Jesus defines marriage, right? It's two people, two different families. The next thing you know, you come together and you're one flesh, right? It's not like you're not one and a half flesh and then one and a quarter flesh and then one. No, you, it's all in from the moment 
you are married. But our culture rejects that, which is why our culture, culture largely encourages people to have sex before a marriage, that you need to, to see if you're sexually compatible with your partner. And even though studies have consistently shown that those who waited to have sex until after marriage have far more um, sexual joy and contentment in marriage, we still offer that advice. Our culture also says you need to see if there's relational co- compatibility, which means you need to move in together before you get married. You need to make sure that, that the person you're with is the person that you want to marry, even though every study shows that greatly increases your chances of divorce, to move in together before marriage. And the reason these things don't work is, is not because, it's, it's because they're marriage light, right? It's a consumer relationship. It's saying, well, okay, you can have this much of me, but not all of me. Yeah, I, you can have this part of me, but not this part. Right? And once you've proven yourself, then you can have the rest of me. And it sets a relationship which is based on prove it, and then I'll give myself to you. And, and, and that is never going to work in a relationship that is this intense and this important. If both people aren't all in from the beginning, it's a consumer relationship. And like, like we change brands, we'll change partners. The marriage is meant to be this beautiful gift from God, this covenant relationship Right, This thing designed by God where I look at the person I'm getting married to and saying, I don't care what you do, what mistakes you make going forward. I don't care what you say to me. I don't care what kind of person you become or what you go through in your life. I'm going to be here for it until you die, until I die. It's a covenant relationship. And no doubt on my grandfather's wedding day, he had no expectation that that promise he was making, those promises he was making meant he was going to be caring for a Parkinson's patient up until her death. And yet he knew he was entering into something great, and marriage made him great. Into this selfless, covenant-loving man who lived faithfully until his death. That he lived out what Ben Gibbard wrote in his song, What Sarah Said, Love is Watching Someone Die. That we all want to be loved like that, right? We all want to be the sort of people who can give that love to love someone up until their death. Maybe this morning you're, you're divorced and you say, that, well, it's too late, I, I screwed up. Maybe you're married, right, and you think it's too late, I screwed up, I need out. Or maybe you're single, you think I want into this relationship, or maybe you don't, and you think, well, what does this mean for, for me? So I want to close with, with how we can renew our hope, and really going beyond this passage here in Matthew 19 for how the Bible talks about marriage, not just on this earth, but into eternity. Then maybe this morning you're single and, and you think that I'm, I'm implying like married people are here and single people are here. And, and for whatever reason you're single this morning, whether you're widowed, divorced, or never been married, um, marriage is not here and single people are here. It, it, this is an equal plane of goodness, which actually Jesus says in verses 10 through 12, which Andrew didn't read because they're, they're very confusing. But, but let me explain to them in a way that's very less than confusing. And that is that the disciples hear Jesus teaching, which is basically, hey, I don't ever want anyone to get divorced. And they basically say, well, that, it sounds like you should never get married then. Which no doubt they were saying a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? Like marriage was still the highest ideal. No doubt they still thought everyone should get married. And yet Jesus takes the bait on their question. He's right. You're right. It's really good to be single. It's a really good thing to be single. And so those of you who are single, if we as a church do what churches often do, which is privilege married, married people over single people, you have a right, underline Matthew 19, 10 through 12. Um, and if we ever do that, you can email it to me. You can throw your Bible at me, whatever you want to do to make yourself happy. But we, singleness and marriage are both good. And Jesus says that here. And maybe you say, okay, why? Because, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God. Or maybe this morning you're married and, and you want out. Before you, before you take that step, 
Let me just say there, there are a number of things we as a church want to do with you and, and alongside you. That first, I mean, please meet with Andrew or I, the pastoral staff. Because second, we, we have committed ourselves to knowing good, solid marriage family therapists and counselors who are Christians and who have devoted their professional life to saving marriages and to seeing marriages not just survive but flourish the way that God designed and intended them to. And third, we, we're looking at starting a community group in this fall around the idea of marriage. That so We have a couple here at Christ Community who feels God has called them into that work to see marriages thrive and, and grow. So maybe your marriage is good and this sermon is just freaking you out a little bit right now. And you're like, I need some help. Well, we're gonna, there's a community group maybe designed for you. Or maybe you, you just want a space to talk through marriage. That, that's why we're doing that. There's this, I trust them so deeply that there are a couple of, God has called them to this work. And so if, listen, if, if this morning you are, are married but unhappily and you want out, no doubt there, there, are all, there are all kinds of reasons for you to leave, right? Your spouse is hard-hearted, a sinner who the Bible says should go to hell. So divorce is a completely understandable response. And yet, Jesus, in the Bible and through the Bible story of marriage, there is a reason you can have hope this morning. The same reason a single person can have hope, the kingdom of God. Or maybe this morning you, you're divorced and, and this sermon is making you feel a bit second class. Let me just say, I hope you don't feel that way. Um, I've seen many churches treat divorced people as second class Christians. And let me just say, we do not want to do that. Where, where you have been is not where you are. And God wants to meet you where you are. And you're welcome here. We're glad you're here. And please do not hear this as second, that you're second class because I mean this. I have the same sin issues in my heart that would lead me to divorce if I didn't marry a far better person than myself. And so if, if this morning, whether your divorce was truly the best of bad options and you're glad to be out, or whether it's something that causes despair and sadness in you, there, there's hope for you this morning, the same hope that's there for the married person, the single person, the kingdom of God. Because when Jesus went around earth inviting people into his kingdom, into heaven, one of his favorite metaphors was a wedding, a feast. That Jesus basically says God wants to relate to you as a spouse in a covenant relationship where God does not look at you and say, okay, if you do these things for me, then, then we can be in a relationship together. No, he looks at us from a covenant saying, I will do these things for you. Come be in a relationship with me. And maybe you hear that and think, no, there's no way God could love me like that. But the reality is in Mark 16, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you all are hard-hearted, you're stubborn, you're stiff-necked, stiff -necked, you ignore me. That is after Jesus has gone to the cross to die for them, to say to them, I will never divorce you. You may be hard-hearted, you may be my disciples, you may fail me to every day for the rest of your life, but I am committed to you. That is the sort of commitment, the love that God extends to us. It's why we read Psalm, um, the psalm that says, God, your faithfulness endures forever. And the reality is no one will love you like God is offering to love you. Your spouse will not love you like that, as great as they may be. And even if your spouse has broken their vows to you, God will never break his vows to you. After all, he, he already spilled all his blood for you. He went to a cross for you. No one will love you like that. And if that covenant love is the center of our experience as Christians, right? If the center of our experience as Jesus-following people is God dying for us on a cross that should fill us with incredible hope, this morning, the one, if you're happily married this morning, enthusiastically married, which is what we would want for everyone, well, your marriage is but a taste of the relationship and the joy that you're to have in the, the new heavens and the new earth to come with God himself. 
That if you're married this morning and you want out and you're not sure that you can get through the problems that you're, you and your spouse are going through, listen, you need to come near to Jesus. You need to let him love you with the love of a spouse, a covenant love, someone dying for you, spilling his blood for you, sparing no expense to bring you home. You need to come and let him love you in that way before you lift up your eyes and turn out towards your spouse. Or this morning, if you're divorced and you, you feel a sense of guilt or shame, get near to Jesus because he will never divorce you. He will never look down on you. He will never thumb his nose at you. He will never look, look in spite on you and say, look at all you've done wrong. No, he goes to a cross. He knows you're hard-hearted. He knows you're broken, and he goes to a cross anyway. And if you're single, if you're single this morning, whether you're divorced or you're widowed, you're, um, you've never been married, know that your deepest longings for a relationship will be met in the end with Christ. It's why when God, when Jesus shows John the Apostle what heaven is, he shows him a wedding. It's in Revelation 19. Here's what John sees. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, for the Lord our Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now I don't know what the story of marriage has been in your life up until this point. Whether it's been painful or life-giving, whether it's been sorrowful or, or full of joy, whether they're unmet longings and disappointments, or all of your deepest dreams have come. True. I don't know where your story of marriage is today, but I know where it ends if you are in Christ. It ends with the great, greatest wedding ever thrown, the greatest wedding feast ever thrown, where you, as God's church, are welcomed to relate to God, not as a consumer that's good enough to get in, but as a spouse he's committed his covenant love to, his, his steadfast, unfailing, forever gracious love. And that is love you do not have to wait for, but it's available to you now through Christ and what he has done for you. Let's pray. God, I pray now that you would fulfill your promise to pour out your steadfast love on every person in this room. God, for those who are divorced, I pray for an extra measure of grace and compassion. For those who are married and want out, I pray for, for hope. I pray that they would be showered with your love, that they would see you fulfilling your vows to us, and that we give them a sense of hope for their earthly marriage. I pray for those who are single, God, that they would have a depth of relationship and knowing you that would bring them a joy that would be greater than any marriage we could, we could experience. And above all, God, I pray that the words, great is thy faithfulness, would pour into our hearts now, God, that you are a faithful God whose steadfast love abounds and is not pulled because we don't live up to you, because we fail, because we're, we're hard of hearted. But God, it is a steadfast, faithful love that endures even to a cross. Pour that love into us now, I pray. Through Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you again for being with us uh, this morning. And uh, it's one of those sermons that's really hard, that if, if anyone leaves this room thinking you're here and other people are, are here, you, you haven't been listening, um, including me. And this is a hard sermon to give, a hard sermon to hear. I look out, I know the stories of the people. Um, and, and I think the two things that, that always keep me tethered is, on the one hand, the Bible pulls no punches about how deeply broken I am. 
and, and yet holds nothing back with how much God has done to pursue us, to love us, and bring us home. And so this morning, if you hear anything other than whatever, whatever sin is a part of our lives, God has not done enough to overcome that, then that, that is a, the center of the gospel message. We all come broken, and God has done all that he can to bring us back. And so that's why I preach, is because I believe whatever, whatever it is in our hearts and minds this morning, God, God doesn't care. He loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, and I hope you hear that loud and clear um, this morning. And he also has a great future for us. So I want to end with a benediction from Revelation 19. It's important for us to know where we're going um, if we're going to live rightly here. And if, if our ending is this great marriage supper of the Lamb with God for all eternity, that's, that's where we're headed. And may, we, may our, our hearts and minds be focused this week as we live into all the joys and challenges that marriage brings to us. And so the, the benediction's from Revelation 19. If you're comfortable, raise your hand to, to now receive it. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb will come, and his bride he will make her ready. It was granted for us to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure. That is your future. May you go in peace.